Oh, hey, I'm Julia Hole. I know it's time to go to the grocery store when I'm getting low on cheese. Welcome back to another episode of WTF Biology. Today's topic is one of my favorite things to talk about, mycorrhizal fungi. WTF is that, and WTF are there two R's in the word mycorrhiza. The first answer is that mycorrhizal fungi are root-associated fungi that form typically mutualistic relationship with most, but not all, plants. We're talking like 80 to 90% of all land plants associate with mycorrhizal fungi. So it's the plants that don't have mycorrhizas that are the weirdos. Myco means fungus and rhizo means root. So mycorrhizas are literally fungus roots. So why two R's? Some dude thought that the word looked better with two R's and we all shrugged our shoulders and says, sure, an unnecessary R it is. Mycorrhizal fungi are super important to ecosystem processes, especially in dry lands where water is a limiting factor in plant growth. But before we get into all the awesome weirdness that is mycorrhizas, let's get the housekeeping out of the way. Please follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and or TikTok. I'm at WTF underscore biology in all of those places. Please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTF biology. For a buck a month, you'll get access to tons of bonus content, including a secret about each full episode. The secret comes fully equipped with a behind the scenes look and a moral to the story. For five bucks a month, you'll get exclusive access to bonus cool ass nature shit videos where I walk around the forest, by my house, or wherever I happen to be, and point out shit that I think is cool. If you prefer to watch the conversation with today's guest, you can pop over to patreon.com slash wtfbiology and see the video at the five buck level. That's over, so now let's get into it. I talked to a fellow mycorrhizologist who I've known for five or six years. After completing his PhD in forestry at Northern Arizona University, he is now a forest health researcher associate at Mountain Studies Institute and a faculty member at Fort Lewis College in Colorado. Please join me in welcoming mycophile Dr. Mike Remke. All right, let's do this thing, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Thank you for um, taking the time to talk with me about mycorrhizas. Yeah, thanks, Julie. I'm really excited to, to be on What the Fuck Biology because <laughs> it seems like the perfect format to talk about mycorrhizas. So I'm, I'm glad you reached out and I'm honored to be on your show. Because mycorrhizas are pretty like, what? What, what? the fuck? <laughs> what are you guys doing? Okay, so before we talk about those, let's talk about you. How did you become interested in science? I feel like that's such a loaded question, but mm -hmm. the answer is, to be honest, quite simple. I, I grew up in Colorado and was lucky enough to, to be in a family that would go out hiking and, you know, we'd go to the mountains and we'd hike and we'd go to the desert and hike. And it, it's just always surrounding, surrounded by these outstanding natural places. And a lot of them are so stunning. It's like, how could there be these dramatic red rock, beautiful scenic places right next to these dramatic towering alpine vistas and I, I was always just kind of blown away by it and so in college I was studying economics when I first started in college mm -hmm. and um, this college where I'm now a professor is Fort Lewis College so it's a liberal arts college and they require us to take all these gen ed classes and 
So I took a science class and I think the name of the science class I took was like uh, Southwestern ecology or, or something. It was just like an introduction uh, to ecology rooted in this place of the Southwest. And we went outside and we're looking at bark beetles inside of ponderosa pine trees mm -hmm. and having this whole conversation about drought and resin and trees and uh, just sort of suddenly clicked in my brain of like, ecology is the economics of the non-human world. And it was just like, boom, that's what I want to study. That's what I want to think about all the time. And it was, there was no going back. I had to switch my major right away and boom, I, I was becoming a scientist, you could say. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. My kid is um, doing an economics class and she's like, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. And then I was like, well, it's just energy. And so we talked about, we put the economics class into the term, the biological terms. And she was like, immediately got it. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's so cool to see all the uh, consilience of ideas from slightly different lenses and perspectives. Absolutely. Why exactly were, did you become interested in fungi? Oh, that's such a good <laughs> question. And it's also convoluted. I, again, in my studies during undergraduate, my uh, major professor for my undergraduate thesis, Julie Korb, taught us about mycorrhizae. I, I learned a lot about plants and focused on plants. And there, there was just this thing we learned about called mycorrhizae. And then we kind of like moved on from it and, and never really touched it again. And I did a thesis trying to understand how plant communities in the Alpine of the San Juan Mountains here in Southwest Colorado respond to things like dust on snow and mm. warming temperatures. And did this whole study and found these pretty profound impacts to plant communities when I simulated the effects of, of dust on snow by actually like sprinkling dust onto snowpack. And I started going to conferences, which is really cool experience for like just finishing my undergrad and going to get to drink beer with ecologists and like nerd out with people. <laughs> and people would always ask me like, great, so dust on snow has consequences to alpine plant communities, but what do we do about it? And my brain was always stuck in like, oh, well, we just graze less and we drive OHV vehicles less. That'll, that'll solve our dust on snow problems. Until I met Matt Balker, mm -hmm. who um, in some email correspondence prior to actually meeting him face to face, so someone had told me to email Matt and reach out to Matt and see what he thought the solution was. And Matt does all this great work with biological soil um, organisms in the deserts. And so he was like, oh, well, the obvious solution to dust is to restore the living skin of the earth. And I was kind of like, wait, what? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he had this whole interest in biological soil crust communities as this tool for drylands restoration. And he said, but the one thing that's missing is the vascular plant community. And I still feel like microbes are going to be the answer for vascular plants. So he, he sort of posed this question of like, how could we restore vascular plants and drylands better? and suggested that mycorrhizae were his hypothesis. And that simple email communication ultimately led to him obtaining funding for me to be his first PhD student. Um, and he was a new professor at uh, the School of Forestry. He had just left his role with the USGS. And 
so I agreed and accepted his his offer, and that led me to working with Matt and Nancy Johnson and uh, Kitty Garing and the others at NAU that people are likely familiar with, who are all working phenomenally well in this world of mycorrhizae. And it, it was this fascination with this question of restoration. Um, and at the time, I was still like really naive to how complicated this relationship was. I was just like in my head, like, oh, yeah, it's the classic mutualism, totally, like restore the mutualists. And <laughs> I didn't even realize how cool a, a route of discovery I was about to embark on by by signing up to do a project about mycorrhizae. Yeah, and I want to talk about that because it, like mycorrhizae are just like so cool. But I think we got to talk about what they are first. What the hell is a mycorrhiza? Yeah, great question. I'm always so eager to talk about them. I always forget to define them. And, you know, ultimately, mycorrhiza is fairly simple if you think about the roots of the word. Myco meaning fungus, rhizo coming from rhizo, which just means root. And so we're talking about fungi that live on or inside of plant roots. Hmm. And when we think about what that means, we then have to go in to understand what they're doing on these plant roots and inside of these plant roots. And perhaps we'll dive more into it later, but there's a couple different groups of these fungi. And the core thing they all have in common is these fungi receive carbon from their plant hosts, the carbon that the plant is making through photosynthesis, of course. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, the fungus is giving back to the plant uh, soil nutrients, especially nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, potentially a whole suite of other things, uh, including soil water. They're providing protection against pathogens by occupying space on the plant root that other otherwise harmful fungi could occupy. And at, it, at the core, this is now an economic system of trade, right? This is fungi trading for soil, trading with soil resources for energy made by the plant. And um, biologically, these have often been defined as the classic mutualism. The more carbon the plant gives to the fungus, the more soil nutrients the fungus gives back to the plant. Thus, the more energy the plant can then give back to the fungus and they both benefit and grow together in, in some sort of beautiful harmony. Yeah, that's the classic ver uh, view of them. But as we'll get into, it's a little more complicated than that. Of course. <laughs> it's it's of course, it's always more complicated. <laughs> Okay, so there's two t major types of mycorrhizas that we have here in the Southwest. There's lots of different kinds, but for the most part, we have our buscular mycorrhizal fungi and ectomycorrhizal fungi. So give me like the quick and dirty about each of those two types, and then we'll start talking about the more complicated version of the story. Yeah, great. So our buscular mycorrhizal fungi or often abbreviated AMF, are fungi uh, that actually grow inside of plant roots and build these big networks of exchange inside of plant roots called arbuscules, right? And so arbor means tree. And so these are structures that look like trees. They're complicated with lots of little branching pieces inside of, um, inside of the plant cells themselves. And then these fungi then ultimately grow 
some structures outside of the plant cells, root cells, so that they can gather some nutrients to bring to these exchange sites within the plant cells. And these fungi, the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, are most common on uh, like crops. When we think about most of the crops that we grow, they have some sort of affiliation with arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, as well as our wildflowers and herbaceous things like wild grasses, um, many tropical trees do as well. And you know, some of our tree species like Gamble's Oak, as an example, this is weird thing, but it can affiliate with arbuscular mycorrhizal mm -hmm. fungi. So that's, that's kind of the nutshell of who they hang out with. It's lots and lots of species of plants and not as many species of fungi. They're a less diverse group of fungi. Um, they're also really old. These generally date back to right around like 460 to 480 million years ago, which is like when plants were emerging from the oceans themselves, we have some fossil evidence that as plants emerged, so did our buscular mycorrhizal fungi. So their, their story pretty much just goes hand in hand with plants. And as long as we know land plants have had affiliations with them. The other thing that I think that's really cool to point out with these things is they don't really make obvious reproductive structures that we can like see. There are spores in the soil, but to, to actually see those spores, you have to do a complex extraction with a vacuum pump and then look at them under a microscope. So until you've done that, the easiest way to see these fungi are to find tiny little fine filaments of their hyphae in the soil or stain them inside of the plant roots and look at plant roots under the microscope or do this complex extraction and find their spores. But that's in contrast to this other group of fungi called ectomycorrhizal fungi. Ectos live outside of the plant roots and actually make like sheaths around the plant roots and ultimately also make big fruiting bodies or cups. Um, and so these are more like your uh, lobster mushrooms and your um, chanterelles and big mushrooms with big fruiting bodies. There, there's quite a few species of them and they're associated most commonly with our coniferous trees, like our pine trees, our spruces, our firs. So, you know, for all the psychonauts in the crowd, like armillaria and the, the trippy red and white mushroom, that's an ectomycorrhizal mushroom to a spruce tree. So there's lots of different kinds of ectomycorrhizal fungi, and including in these two big um, groups, these two phylums, which is like one of the major, the higher um, classifications. So all sorts of fungi can do this um, from these ectomycorrhizal. And they're my favorite. They're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about um, how it gets complicated. So um, when we talk about two different types of organisms, so let's just say trees and fungi, um, are associated with each other, they can kind of fall out anywhere along a spectrum of an inter interaction. So um, they can be this, this true mutualist that you talked about, um, where everybody's happy and like kumbaya. And then they can also be a little bit more commensal. So somewhere in the middle of the spectrum where, you know, one party is benefiting and the other one's like, I don't even give a shit. And then there's the, the opposite end, 
antagonistic relationship where one party's benefited at the other party's expense. Um, and so, you know, these aren't really discrete categories, but more of um, a, a working along the same spectrum. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, do you know how that was discovered? Yeah, this, this is such a great conversation. You know, we often like to put these things in boxes, as, as you kind of described it, like, oh, this is a mutualism and this is more of this antagonistic thing. So we'll call that a parasitic relationship. And um, Nancy Johnson at NAU, such a delightful scientist, sort of was like, okay, well, clearly this is a spectrum of how mutualistic could this function be versus how parasitic could it be? And sort of began to speculate using this idea of ecological stoichiometry and the law of the minimum. And so stoichiometry, right? Like in chemistry, if it's been a while since you've taken a chemistry class, think back to balancing equations, right? If you only have so much of one item in your equation, you're going to have to balance how much of whatever your chemical equation yields based off of how much you had as inputs. Ecological stoichiometry is the same concept, except for now we're talking about a macro system rather than this like small chemical reaction. And the law of the minimum simply suggests that whatever is the most limiting factor, whether in your chemical equation or in your ecological system, will determine how much of something you can produce. So Nancy started to study these plant and mycorrhizal associations in a couple different sites. In some cases, nitrogen was the most limiting, and in other cases, phosphorus was the most limiting. We'll just focus on one example and think about nitrogen. So she had a site where nitrogen was limiting and a site where nitrogen wasn't limiting, and then she would grow plants and my mycorrhizae from these sites, uh, either together or from the opposite site. And then she would add nitrogen and have all these possible combinations. And what she found in a nutshell is if you take a system that doesn't have nitrogen in limitation and you grow plants and mycorrhizal fungi, generally the fungus operates as this mutualism still. But if you add nitrogen to that system, so now you have an abundance of nitrogen, then suddenly the fungus began acting like a parasite mm -hmm. as opposed to a mutualist. Whereas in the site where nitrogen was extremely limiting, adding some nitrogen just diminished the strength of the mutualistic uh, relationship and made it more into that commensalism space of like, yeah, the plant's like, cool, thanks for the nitrogen, this is fine. And so what she speculated is that the concept is just like basic economics. If you don't need something and you're still giving them a resource, but they're not giving you what you, anything in return. So the plant's like, cool, I don't really need nitrogen because the soil is rich in nitrogen, but it's still giving carbon to the fungus. Then the fungus doesn't have anything to offer the plant in return. So suddenly it has a cost for the plant to give that fungus carbon. And it's just like losing the benefit of having that fungus because it doesn't actually need it. It could gather all of those resources on its own just fine. Right. Yeah. You don't pay somebody to do something that you could do for yourself. Right. 
Plants um, can become locally adapted to their abiotic environment. So like things like temperature, precipitation, soil nutrients that like you just talked about. But they can also be locally adapted to biotic conditions like these root-associated fungi and bacteria. So that's kind of was the basis for a lot of your um, PhD work, right? Yeah, that is that is correct. This this idea of local adaptation to your biotic environment, or we thought of this as like home team versus away team, right? Like, are the are the teams of organisms going to perform better at home compared to a, at at an away setting? And this is such a good thing to bring up because often we we talk about like adaptation to climate and how climate is changing. Therefore, all of these biota are in so much trouble and they're so imperiled because this abiotic piece of their environment is changing. But what's really cool to think about is how about if the biotic components of their environment are still stable? How adaptable are they? And is there a benefit to that? Um, and I guess I'll admit, like, this is one of my favorite things to think about in part because every time I go to publish, a reviewer criticizes me for saying local adaptation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It seems really contentious. It seems as if uh, there's maybe a deep philosophical debate on what what local adaptation to something biotic actually is. And is it local adaptation versus co-evolution? Right, right. Well, and then trying to show co-evolution is tricky because you have to show genetic change in both organisms um, as a result of living with the other guy. And, right. and that is really hard. And so, and it kind of does get back into this um, biologists trying to like put labels on things all the time, you know, words matter and stuff, but like, how much does it matter if it's locally adapted or co-evolved if we get the same effect, you know? In my mind, it almost doesn't matter if you're truly interested in the net effect, but I guess where maybe it gets complicated and this is why people get weird about the term local adaptation is this idea of in the microbial world, everything is everywhere. And so you actually do have a lot of individuals of each species being like spread across the world all the time through easy dispersal of wind. And there are these tiny things. So they're in the upper atmosphere. Every time it rains, a microbial community is inoculating the soil surface. Mm. Every time it snows, like if the wind's blowing, new microbes are arriving on the scene. So I think some people aren't a fan of the local adaptation concept because they're, they're like, no, everything's everywhere. And it's just much more dependent on like, oh, what's the abiotic factors that matter? How much is that plant going to grow? How well is that microbe performing in that climate in which it's growing with the plant? Where the biotic interaction story hasn't been examined as closely um, perhaps, but you know, then to refute that, everything might be everywhere, but if you have locally adapted phenotypes, then it still matters who is actually playing the game, so to speak.
Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we, we spent centuries studying the biogeography of plants and animals, and we know that certain plants occur in certain locations and not in others, and and certain animals occur here but not there. But we really haven't examined with the same amount of detail of where do microbes live? And so, you know, people say everything's everywhere, but do we actually know that? That's the important crux because we absolutely don't know that. And really importantly, most of these studies that we're talking about have been relatively biased towards wetter environments. So when we start talking about like Northern Arizona, where my dissertation work was in dry lens, almost every time someone looks to see what microbes are there, there's new species undescribed. Mm -hmm. And it's a totally new community of, of microbes that wasn't found somewhere else. So <laughs> the more we, we look, the more we're starting to learn everything's not everywhere. Right. Which means that they're probably locally adapted to biotic and or abiotic conditions. Seems reasonable to me. Yep. So you looked at um, both arbuscular and ectomycorrhizal fungi. So these are the inside ones and the outside ones. So um, let's just kind of get like the 900-foot view of what you were trying to figure out with these studies. Our, our big questions were, first and foremost, are plants locally adapted to their mycorrhizal communities? And then secondly, are both of these things, the plant and the microbial community together, locally adapted to their abiotic environment? And I guess attached to that is maybe this even more like if that's the 900 foot view, the thousand foot view is how does their functioning change as the environment changes? Mm -hmm. So when you looked at arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, so these are the ones that grow inside, you used a grass host, right? So what's, what is this grass that you, you used and, and why did you look at this one particular? Yeah, we used a, a very common grass called Budalua gracilis or blue grandma grass. It's got the cute little curly seed heads and inflorescences. Beautiful grass. Um, a lot of people in Flagstaff use it as an ornamental in their lawns. Uh, why we chose it is uh, range managers find blue grandma to be a really important grass for uh, forage for domestic cattle. It's really important for uh, winter forage for cattle too. It, it's this big bunch grass and its foliage persists throughout the winter. So it's something that cows can eat. And it's really common and widespread and seemingly pretty drought adapted. So we were really curious to see what this drought adapted important rangeland plant would do when we grew it with different soil organism communities. And there's a flavor of uh, restoration ecology in this because sort of the long view is if we learn that this grass is locally adapted to its mycorrhizal communities, then perhaps we could start thinking about inoculating restoration sites with mycorrhizal communities to accelerate restoration success in drylands. Uh, so, so we wanted to focus on something that is common, native, widespread, and uh, important for people in a uh, specific setting. So that's, that's kind of how we landed on it. And also logistics, I needed to collect seed and grow these things <laughs> from scratch. And the year that I went to collect seed, 
Blue Grandma had all kinds of seed for me to get where many of other grass species we had talked about didn't really produce a whole lot. So there's that. (laughs) Sometimes logistics are really important, especially in ecology (laughs) where like you have this one year to get it right. Like here's your three month window. And if you miss it, you're fucked. Go get those seeds. You're like, uh. Uh, okay. Where? Where? How? Yeah. You're like, the little plant doesn't have seeds. I can't get any seeds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you took these um, uh, different populations of these like super awesome grasses. Um, one was from a relatively wet site and one was relatively dry, right? So we have the abiotic local adaption component to this. And then you swapped their their microbes, right? Right, exactly. So not just the plants from the wet and dry site, but also the microbes from the wet and dry site. And then all possible combinations, right? So now we're growing the plants from the dry site with the microbes from the dry site, the plants from the wet site with the plant the microbes from the dry site, and so on and so forth. <laughs> without, without visuals, it's like, I don't want to get everybody lost. But just think about all the different possible combinations of two sites all the different grasses, all the different microbes. Right, right. And then you got those growing and then you started to torture them. What did you do to them? (laughs) So we subjected them to pretty extreme drought Um, and also a more normal drought, right? So these are grasses that hang out in northern Arizona. They get really wet during the summer monsoons and then it slowly dries out until the end of the growing season. And so we mimicked that process of like that really nice, slow, like we're removing your water. And then we also (laughs) just said, sorry, you don't have any water and totally (laughs) cut them off. Okay. So you have this nice, slow dry down and you're like, fuck you guys and you're toast. So what happened? What did you find out? The most startling reality was if we paired plants with the microbes from the same site, or effectively what we could call the home team. In both dry down scenarios, those plants stayed greener longer, kept growing more, and overall just were like much happier plants before we started stressing them out. So those are the plants that grew the best, actually produced reproductive structures, and survived our torture way longer. So that suggests that, yeah, they actually are locally adapted to each other that is the argument that we made in our recent publication that is cool not only did the plants grow more in that scenario that i just described with the home team but the fungi also grew quite a bit more as well so we're like operating in that safe just space of mutualism Mm. in that environment where when we grew the plants from say the dry site with the microbes from the wet site so the away team pairing Not only did the plants grow less, but the fungi also grew less. And what we outlined in our paper is that that appeared to be much more of a parasitic relationship. Mm -hmm. And we did a pretty deep dive into the different types of fungal structures that the fungi actually grow. Like plants can grow roots or they can grow shoots or they can grow flowers, right? Mm -hmm. And fungi can also grow different structures. And so they can grow hyphae to gather nutrients arbuscules to trade nutrients or vesicles which are basically like potatoes for a fungus (laughs) except for they're inside of plant roots and 
what's really interesting is when a fungus puts something into its vesicle, it's totally inaccessible for the plant. As soon as that fungus gets carbon from the plant, it converts that carbon into a form that the plant can't use. And what we found is when fungi operated more mutualistically, they made more hyphae and arbuscules so they could gather and trade more. Where when fungi operated more as a parasite, they invested a lot more of the carbon they got from the plant into these big vesicles that make carbon totally unaccessible for the plant. And that's something that really helps us better understand the mechanism of how could these fungi operate across this entire spectrum of biotic interactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of like to use the analogy, like, and this kind of goes back to the economics thing, like, um, you know, you're the, the plant is paying the fungus in like US dollars, but then in the fungus is like, thank you very much. And then it changes it into Canadian dollars. And then the plant's like, well, damn it. Now I can't get that money back. Exactly. <laughs> no. Yeah. But so sometimes the fungus is like, hey, I got you all these yummy goods from Canada. <laughs> They're like, would you like some uh, crispy crunch? And the plant's like, yes, I would. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I was instantly like, what goods would a fungus bring back from Canada. Like, what food would back from Canada would like? <laughs> would you like some all-dressed potato chips? <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> you know, when when we see that, um, those, an increase in vesicles, we're like, mm, yeah, right. The, this guy's, the fungus is taking advantage of the plant. Um, and so that kind of pushes it more to that parasitic end or that antagonistic end of the spectrum. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so um, so your experiment with ponderosa pine was similar, but um, important. It's, so similar concept. You wanted to test the same um, concept, right, of this local adaptation of plants to their uh, microbes, but just logistically, there were some differences. Yeah. So ultimately, the the ponderosa pine site experiment. We only had one site where we collected ponderosa pine seeds from. And then we outplanted those trees to three different sites. One that was the same site the seeds came from. One site that was warmer and drier to stimulate drought by the way nature does it, rather than us just turning off the water. And then another site that was cool and wet, uh, so higher elevation. So effectively, we took ponderosa pine and we grew it in a pinion juniper woodland. And we took ponderosa pine and grew it in a mixed conifer forest. And the, the point of that, not just simulating drought, uh, but also simulating cool and wet was twofold. One was to ask this question of like plant migration. What happens if a plant moves upslope? How is that environment going to change its mutualistic interactions? And what if it, we don't move it with its microbes and it just has to grow with whatever microbes are there? Mm -hmm. Is that going to be something that's survivable for this tree? And then also, you know, we talked about Nancy's experiment earlier with nitrogen, where we could think of like low amount of nitrogen, medium amount of nitrogen and high amount of nitrogen. Now we're doing the same thing with moisture. It's like drought equals low, home site equals moderate and cool wet site equals lots. Mm -hmm. So we're building an environmental spectrum rather than just like the binary boxes. Right, right. You know, when you talked about what happens when we move these pines with or without their um, their microbes. So pines aren't found natively in the southern hemisphere. 
And so when people wanted to start using pines for lumber and stuff, they would take the seeds and they were like, these guys just die. Like, we cannot grow a pine. And it wasn't until they took some soil that had these um, mycorrhizal fungi in the soil and took them to the southern hemisphere did those plants even survive. So, so pines have to have mycorrhizal fungi or they just can't hack it. And, and there is, you know, a history of, of moving the microbes with the plant. Yeah, that's such a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up because now we have this idea of like co-invasion of pines in the summer southern hemisphere because now that we've moved the microbes, it's like they're just like invading the southern hemisphere together, which is wild and fascinating. And so now we're like shrinking that geography and just saying, what happens if a pine just moves into a place with other pines? Right. And I think maybe we should take a step back and say there's not just one type of vectomycorrhizal fungi. There's lots and lots of species of fungi that do this. And so if this group of species is in the hot, dry site, and then this other group of species is in the wet, cool site, like, how is that going to change how the plant grows? Um, and that's, that's what you were testing. Exactly. You nailed it. That's exactly right. Okay, so what did you find with these pondos? Oh, man, this one was a mess. Uh, <laughs> I, I should share, too, the, the manuscript has a lot of really fun physiological data to help justify some of our findings. Uh, but I'll just share the, the quick and dirty. I'm going to share what happened at the dry site first. Okay. At the dry site, we found that the pine trees grew quite a bit more when we moved them with their ectomycorrhizal community. And... Not only did they grow more than if we forced them to grow with the ectomycorrhizal community of that site, they actually exceeded the growth of the trees that we outplanted at the site where we collected their seeds. So warm and dry grew more than trees growing at their home site of origin. Oh, interesting. They're and like, we like this better. <laughs> yeah, like they were stoked, right? They were, they were super excited. And I think a few things to point out is... They were seedlings. They mm -hmm. were young trees. So they're getting water from closer to the soil surface than, say, a mature tree. Mm -hmm. And the, the years in which we did this experiment, both years, we had fairly wet springs where at the site where we got the pine seeds from, they got snow and it was cold. Whereas at the warm, dry site, it was warm and it rained. Mm. And effectively... I think that means that the pines had a longer growing season at the warm, dry site, as long as they had their microbes to help them gather the water that was available in the soil. Oh, interesting. So if they were given um, different microbes, the, the away team wasn't as, as effective. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And our physiological data would support that assertion that this is a water story. Which it makes sense. Like, you know, we, we talked about the limiting factors and the law of the minimum. Well, when you live in Arizona, water is the limiting factor <laughs> almost always. Um, like the plants can't just go to Oak Creek and go for a swim and be satisfied. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're like, oh, man, let's go to the Colorado. Nope, they're stuck. <laughs> Walk on the rim where there's no water. Yep. Let's zoom back out to the, the thousand foot view. So when you take both the results of the ectomycorrhizal fungi experiment with the ponderosas 
and the arboscular mycorrhizal fungi with the grass. What does that mean for restoration and conservation in the southwestern U.S.? I think the biggest takeaway to me is intact biotic interactions give rise to the communities that we historically know and that we contemporarily see today. And so if, if we want to protect those systems like ponderosa pine, we need to do our best to limit the disturbance to those biotic interactions. It means we need to preserve our soil resources because the living component of the soil is super important for supporting ponderosa pine. However, we're not always going to succeed in that, right? Mm -hmm. We just had a season with many, many, many large fires. And those fires are going to sterilize the soil surface. And we see many years after these big, large fires, there's just no ponderosa pine regeneration. We also see that the mycorrhizal community is gone and it persists as gone for a really long time. So if we wish to restore a ponderosa pine forest, once that biotic component is altered, then we might need to think about how we restore the soil microbes in addition to just the target plant species we're interested in. And not only will not any soil microbe do, we have to, we have to actually think about like, oh, we collected our seeds from here, which means we need to collect our soil microbes from here because we have pretty compelling evidence that these things are very strongly locally adapted to one another. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we want to plant something, we should probably think about planting it with its associated biota as well. Right, yeah. I've done a few workshops with some land managers where we talk about the benefits of providing um, so I study cottonwoods. So, so providing cottonwood trees with their mycorrhizal fungi and they're like, Oh, cool. Well, I saw on Amazon that you can buy mycorrhizal inoculum. What if I just get that? Well, don't, please don't get that. Don't do that. <laughs> because <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Like the, the fungi that are used in those mycorrhizal commercial inoculum, are weedy plants, right? Or no, sorry, weedy fungi. These are fungi that you can grow really fast, are easily um, packed up and shipped off to other places, but they're not going to be locally adapted to the conditions, or even they might not even associate with your plant. And because all of these interactions occur along the spectrum, what you you think you're adding a mutualist, but depending on the conditions, you might actually be adding a parasite. We always tell these um, land managers, go to where, you know, your reference site, which is similar to what you want your community to look like when you're done, collect some of that soil because it's going to have, it's more likely to have the right types of fungi than this commercial shit that you buy off the internet. Right. I mean, that's, that's the best thing. I'm so glad you do that because you're in the know. <laughs> and like, this is where education is so important. And you know, even Nancy empirically tested a lot of these commercial inoculums and she, she generally found like, if we're going to talk about wild plants, those commercial inoculums are basically just like a bag of dead fungi. It's just fertilizer, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is exactly what you described. The plant's not even going to really signal to this like strange weedy fungus that it's never encountered before in its life. They're not adapted to have that relationship. So all of that biomass that's in that inoculum ends up just dying and mm. becoming a small little kick of nitrogen. So it might give you a positive 
spike in plant growth because it's just nitrogen, but it, you haven't successfully established a mutualistic relationship. Right, right. And you uh, run the risk of introducing a an invasive species because right. that, that fungus might just really take off in the soil and not be helpful to the plants that are native to that area. Um, and it's a lot harder to manage a, a invasive species when you can't see it. Right. It's <laughs> like have an invasion beneath our feet and we won't even know it. Yeah, exactly. Not all mycorrhizal fungi are created equal. And if you're interested in restoration, do your homework. Spot on. Okay. So I have just a couple more um, silly questions for you. Um, what is like the fuckiest thing that has happened to you while you were researching? Uh there's so many good stories, but I, I think I have to pick this one just because it's comical. Uh, and I, I wish I had a picture of it. Um, so to, to do this ponderosa pine planting that I described, we had these huge containers, like tree containers that, you know, we wanted to give plenty of space for these trees to grow into the soil. And mm. so we needed holes to put these containers in, like planting giant trees, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to go dig holes and you know first started digging them by hand i had some high school volunteers to help with flagstaff high school mm -hmm. and it was great the first day felt really rewarding because it was like these high school kids were trying to show off for the cute girls in the class or whatever and so i had right. these guys were just like <laughs> macho digging and i was like nice we got like six holes dug that's awesome then it was down to just me to dig uh -huh. and uh, luckily, I had hired a technician, so I had some help from from a, a wonderful technician. But boy, I feel bad because she and I are like digging all these holes, and it's like this is not going anywhere fast. And <laughs> you know, we both have sore backs and all this. And so I, I go to my advisor, and I'm like, Matt, I think we should rent a skid steer with a hydraulic auger. And he's like, Okay, cool, good idea. That sounds awesome. <laughs> so I load up the auger on the trailer, take it to the first site is at the Arboretum in Flagstaff and it's this nice like basaltic soil and it's really clay and the auger digs like all of these beautiful holes perfect no problem and I'm like wow cool that's great can't <laughs> believe how fast that went yeah it was way and easier I, than high school kids way easier than high school kids and they're beautiful like perfect holes you know mm -hmm. so I'm like cool let's go to the next site and we load up the auger we have to drive all the way to the north rim on the Kaibat Plateau which is now this uh you know, derived from Kaibab limestone, which is like rocky. Like think the first sheer cliff you see at the Grand Canyon. Like that's mm -hmm. what the soil is made mm -hmm. out of. It's right. got all these big rocks in it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Here we go. Get the auger out. And the first couple holes are like going pretty good. Just like driving this thing into the ground. And then maybe it's like hole five or six. And it's like pretty early in the day. And uh, a hydraulic line just like explodes and I take a shower and, hydraulic fluid <laughs> oh, no. and watch as like the auger relaxes into the hole. Oh. We're like 30 miles from the nearest paved road. You know, you, I believe Julia, you've been to all of those sites up there. And so yep. we're like <laughs> yep. way out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, okay, how do I fix this? <laughs> so I call the company that I rented it from and the guy's like, yeah, 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 sure. We'll send someone out. Where is it? 
And I like start to describe the location. And, <laughs> and you're like, it's well, three hours on the highway. And then there's 30 miles of dirt road. <laughs> like, Make sure you tell your guys to get cookies at Jacob Lake. <laughs> right. Because <Wow>. <laughs> and this guy's like, hold up, hold up. Like, where are you? <laughs> and so, you know, whatever. He, he figures it out. And I give him like a map of how to get there. Mm-hmm. And it's like a week later, he finally goes out there. And I get a phone call and he's like, it's a good thing you bought the insurance. We'll cover it. But I just want to let you know that we are changing our company policy. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he proceeds to tell me that they've in- initiated a rule that you can't take equipment more than an hour and a half from town. And you can't take an equipment more than five miles down dirt road without <laughs> getting special approval first. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're a pain in the ass, and we don't want to do that again. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, and in talking to these people, they're like, what are you even doing with our equipment up here? <laughs> so I, like, told them about my experiment and how I was going to plant some pines. And um, the, the place where they recovered the equipment was a pinion juniper woodland. And, and he's like, you're going to plant ponderosa pines up there? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. And he's just, like, gives me this, like, huge shit-eating grin ear to ear and he's like i'll tell you what them trees are gonna die look around up there boy there's no water <laughs> those trees are gonna die <laughs> and you're like i know <laughs> i'm gonna learn why they're gonna die <laughs> studying their death <laughs> this guy's just like man this kid is weird <laughs> all right i mean like give me the money but <laughs> okay <laughs> that's funny all right so is there um, a scientist that's well-known or otherwise that has changed how you think about biology or science in general? I feel like the list is numerous. There, There's so many scientists that have changed how I think about science. And, you know, I, I, I think I, I just hands down have to give props to Nancy, Nancy Johnson, for um, not just helping me think about science differently, but, but helping me really just see the world in this like beautiful like rainbows and sunshine delightful enthusiasm curiosity for the world and and also like in a way that always reminds me to be a colleague to to everyone even non-scientists if i'm if i'm working on a scientific question other people just have different perspectives and their stories and ideas and, and narratives are ultimately going to influence how I think if I give them the space to let it. And uh, so Nancy's just always helped me see the world in the like empower others and see others as your equal type of light. And I I really appreciate that about her. And I think that's the thing that I carry the most weight of from people who have influenced me today. Yeah. Yeah. She is, uh, she is an amazing person and, uh, yeah, I'm so lucky that um, my path has crossed with her um, a few times. You know, she was on the on the Rachel Carson episode I did, and just the whole conversation that I had with her was like, you know, even though I've known her for years now, like it, she just every time I talk to her, she's just like gives me a new perspective, and and that is a really a really special thing that you know not everybody has the power to do and, and she's she's just so cool she's the coolest <laughs> amazing getting to interact with her yep 
Yeah. I shouldn't say the coolest because superlatives are lame. She's amazing. Okay. Um, I would argue that she is the coolest. I think that there's <laughs> <laughs> there's two people that I'm like, all right, these are the best people on the face of the planet. And one of them's Nancy Johnson and the other one's Kitty Garing. Because those two women are just fucking badasses. And, totally. And like they should have egos that are like, you know, just gigantic, but they they don't. They're the most humble and kindest people that I know. I couldn't agree more. And indeed, I believe Scientific American or, or Science, uh, uh, one of the online science journals honored Nancy as one of the top 50 most influential women scientists some years ago. I think in my second year of my PhD, I was like, and that woman's on my committee. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, she, oh, she's so cool. Well, I'm going to look that up because that would be, that's awesome. Okay, cool. Well, is there anything that you want to plug? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to enjoy some photography, and I often compliment my photography with super nerdy captions about all kinds of things from forest ecology to fun things about insects and other things that I learn about in the world. Definitely feel free to, to give a follow on social media. It's Myco, M-Y-C-O underscore Remke, R-E-M-K-E on Instagram. Myco Remke, right? Because it sounds like <laughs> Michael Remke, but it's also Myco. But, but it's like fungus. <laughs> That's really clever. Little play on words you got there. I guess I have a convenient name for it. <laughs> That's really why you got interested in mycorrhizal fungi, because it's kind of like your name. Yeah. Some professor was like, yeah, mycology is cool. And I was like, is that the study of Michael? My, yeah. <laughs> That's me. Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I know you're really busy. Yeah, thanks, Julia. It's super fun. I look forward to hearing from all the other wonderful people you bring on the podcast. It's been fun following along. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Take care and stay healthy out there. Yeah, you too. Well, that's it for this episode of WTF Biology. Undoubtedly, there will be future episodes where we take a deeper dive into some of the other weirdness that are mycorrhizas. There's so much being discovered about these dope interactions between plants and fungi that definitely needs exploring. Join me next week for a mini episode where I revisit my conversation with the most excellent regents professor, Dr. Nancy Johnson, who is a total badass. I'll play some of the interview that we recorded for the Rachel Carson episode that ended up on the cutting room floor. And a shameless plug, if you haven't heard episode two, WTF biologist Rachel Carson, go back and check it out. My five guests and I explore the life and legacy of Rachel Carson. You can go to patreon.com slash WTF biology to get access to the full interviews from that episode and tons of other awesome bonus content. At the five buck a month level, I'll post videos. Today's interview was the first time I got a video recording of the interview. So now you can watch this conversation with Mike and I on Patreon if you so choose. As always, the music for this episode was written by Dr. Ron Deckert. You can check out his music on soundcloud.com slash ron-deckert. And the music for this episode, the song is titled Mike O'Riza, so definitely give that a listen and hear the whole thing. Okay, awesome guys, thanks, and I'll see you guys next week.